Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this part of the message or this part of the service. And our, uh, when the pastors met together this morning for prayer, Keith made a comment um, of a message that he heard recently. And the pastor there was talking, he used the acronym WIFE in how a church and the goal of a church, should, what the goal of a church should be. And the acronym WIFE is the first one, the first word is worship. The I is for instruction. The F is for fellowship. And the E is for evangelism. And I like that. Um, I, I appreciate the, after he said that, and then we, then we uh, sang the opening song, and what Laverne shared was on worship, and then what Lloyd shared was focused on worship. And I thought, wow, holla God to just bring that all together in a way that uh, Keith didn't even know was going to happen when he shared that. That is a very important part of, of, a, of, a, of a congregation, particularly of a local body. When we come together in corporate, worship, corporate uh, service, part of the critical uh, dimension of, of public worship is, is the whole idea of worshiping God. And I just love that part of it. Equally important is the instruction and uh, being instructed, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, and we increase in knowledge and understanding, and, uh, and then the fellowship that happens, so the, the, the oneness of spirit that happens, so critical in the body life, and I've been at places where um, that was missing, and uh, I just, there, there wasn't a lot of fellowship that happened but we do that because ultimately the goal is to take it out, to evangelize and carry it outside of these walls. It's very important that good things happen inside these walls, but it cannot be contained here. It must be moved outside. And uh, so I like that. Well, the title that I've chosen this morning, as you can see, is a biblical ex- exegesis on church discipline. I've used that word previously in a message, the word exegesis, and it's not a difficult word to understand. It's simply a, a critical explanation or interpretation of a text or a portion of a text, particularly related to the Bible. And uh, so I want to pick up on a portion of Scripture that... Uh, well, I have to confess it's my first time that I've actually preached a message on it. And I've alluded to this and probably touched on it in the past. But as far as dedicating one whole message to it, I don't know that I have in my 20 years of preaching. So shame on me, probably. But uh, I just sense the need of uh, maybe doing that. And I also will say at the onset that I was honestly just going to share one message on this. Um, had no intentions of it to go further than that. But the more I got into it, the more I just like, I, you know what, I can't make the people sit this long, and I won't. Um, and so what I want to do today, I think I just have, I have a growing sense that there is some misunderstanding of a critical instruction in Scripture related to church discipline, often referred to excommunication, and uh, I'll, I'll get to that later, but uh, just some prior misconceptions, and maybe a little bit of, of angst when you think about it, possibly because of some of the misuses that have happened uh, in relation to this, and uh, I would like to bring us back to just going to Scripture and saying, hey, look, what does Scripture have to say about this? And just just uh, looking at it from that point of view, I want to lay the foundation. I want to lay the foundation by sharing the principle today, okay? I want to lay the principle today of this whole concept. And then the next time I want to bring in the practical points and possibly some ideas and views of how we can practically use this in a redemptive way, okay? So today's the principle 
Later we'll do the practical part of how we can look at it in a, uh, in a, uh, in a, in a practical way. I want to look at several observations today. I don't know of a greater heart-rendering experience than for a father or a mother or parents to have to look to a child and tell the young adult, uh, son or daughter, we're going to have to ask you to leave our home. We begged with you. Sorry about that, I just told. When I think about it, for a parent to have to do that to a child and say you're going to have to leave home because of the choices that you're making in life for the sake of our younger children. We're going to have to ask you to leave. It must rip at the heart of a, of a parent. Has to. There couldn't be any other way. For a parent to have to do that. And I've, I know a few cases where that was, where that happened. And it just has to rip at the heart of a parent. I can't imagine the parent that has to go through that. Sorry, can I have a tissue, please? In the Old Testament, we see God dealing with an erring, rebellious child. Thank you. By removing the rebellious child outside of the camp of Israel and the requirement of the law said they needed to be stoned to death. That's the severity of how God dealt with the sin of rebellion. He placed them outside the camp, took them away, and they were stoned to death. Under the mercy of the New Testament, A rebellious child is no longer executed for his rebellion. But please understand that this does not give us the right to be passive towards insolence. The sin must be dealt with at a root level. It has to be dealt with at a root level or it will spread like a disease. Galatians 5 verse 9 says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Not only is this principle true in the home, a parent is a wise parent to deal with that kind of sin right at a root level. Not only is it true in the home, but it is also true in the church. Second observation I want to make is that as we think about the Old Testament, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, we see that the overt disobedience came mainly 
and how it was dealt with was through stoning. But we also see God dealing with other sins. Not only was death, was, was rebellion dealt with by death, by stoning, but we see other ways that God dealt with sin. The adultery was also dealt with by stoning. Uh, fornication, the instruction was that they were to be stoned to death. That's how God dealt with these kinds of sins. Blasphemy, the scriptures say that when a person blasphemed God, he was to be stoned to death. And it was God's way of getting rid of it at a root level. He knew the principle that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so in order to eradicate it, in order to get rid of it, he took them outside of the camp and they were stoned to death. Child sacrifice, if a parent sacrificed their child, they were to be stoned to death. We see it in stealing. Think about Achan. And what happened? I think Laverne shared, was it Laverne? I think that shared on Achan several Sundays ago. Uh, They were stoned to death if they were caught stealing. Gathering wood on Sunday. If they gathered wood on the Sabbath, they were to be stoned to death. The idea was, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so we see several ways how God uh, dealt with this kind of sin. Now, we oftentimes think of God as two different persons, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And, uh, but he's not. He's the same guy. He says, the scriptures say that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the question then we need to ask ourselves is, has God's attitude towards sin changed? Yes or no? No, no, no. God's attitude of sin has not changed. What has changed in the new kingdom is the way that God deals with an erring brother or sister. Under the new dispensation of the, of the New Testament church, under the dispensation of the New Testament church, Christ deals with an erring, unrepentant member of his body by placing him outside of the circle of fellowship, which we oftentimes refer to as excommunication. Now let me just stop right there and say, actually, the word excommunication is not a biblical term. I'm sure you're aware of that. We refer to it, we use it as a reference to this principle. But the word itself is not found in Scripture. So if we use it in the future, it's not because it's a biblical term, but because it's a way to refer to the principle that we're talking about. I chose to use the phrase church discipline uh, in my message or in the title of the message. It is lamentable that this biblical injunction has a history filled with much non-use and misuse, but very little proper use. This past week, Brother Jake sent me an article that uh, Mel Lehman wrote that deals with this very, very subject. And I was thinking, why God to bring something like that to my attention while I was studying on this, on this, uh, on this subject. And even though I'm not using any, if any of his uh, content or material that he had, it was a good read. And he goes to great length and reaches back to pre-Reformation history to show what happened that today the general populace of modern church life largely disputes the ineffectiveness of excommunication and or church authority. It is a very interesting read. A good friend of mine uh, years ago wrote a thesis paper on this subject, excommunication, and in so doing, he reached out to the pastors of his local community, and he, he interviewed them, all of them in his area, and asked them, have you ever dealt with an erring member in your congregation? Not 
one of them ever did that in their history. And some of them were appalled that you should even consider doing that. Welcome to the church of the accommodating. Even to the point of ignoring blatant sin. Is it any wonder that in the West, many call themselves Christian even when living in open sin? We have conditioned them for this by ignoring this principle. Now, let me quickly say that in minority groups, such as the conservative Anabaptist churches, where church discipline is supported, or the dismissal of an erring member, there are far too many horror stories where there is a lack of love and unbrotherliness that has surrounded this action. It is without doubt that, that some of you, even here in this audit audience this morning, have witnessed or possibly experienced something of this sort, and in such cases have also concluded and have been conditioned to think that such discipline is totally ineffective in the least and at the, at the, at the most uh, un unimportant. Um... And I'm the first to raise my hand. I'm the first to raise my hand and say that when truth is promoted in the absence of love, I'll repeat that again, when truth is promoted in the absence of love, particularly surrounding this principle that we're going to look at today, then it causes this teaching to be shuddered at, shuddered at and to be rejected. And hence, what happens is that we throw out the what? Baby with the bathwater. We just get rid of the whole thing. And I want to call you back. <laughs> I want to call you back this morning. It is my conviction that when discipline is permeated in the context of patient, loving care in the home, a child in the, in the home where where, the, where, where, there's, where there's patient love, yet discipline, I have yet to see a child reject his father or mother's leadership and their convictions. And in order for a father's voice to be effective in discipline, it is pertinent that he builds a quality of relationship in the context of love. A father or a mother who is all love and no discipline have unruly children. I had that yesterday in the showroom. A parent came in with a little brat. I'm just going to be very honest with you. She dominated the parents. She ruled the parents. She needed a lot of little swats, big swats, on the seat of her body. Uh, she was a brat. All love, no discipline. If it's all discipline, no love, you're going to have children that will conform. But at some point in the journey, they will rebel. And so we have to have that proper mixture of love and discipline. Similarly, in a local church, a, a local church must be characterized by loving care for each other. I think I could, I know I could. In fact, I'll ask you, should a church be characterized by love and care? Who all thinks that's true? Absolutely we do. Of course we do. Each member is responsible to look out for the well-being of the other person. But when discipline is missing in this context, can it be truly called love? You see, the backbone of real love is bathed in the context of discipline. Let me say that again. 
the backbone of real love is bathed in the context of discipline. Most churches in the West welcome people to a one-way street into, into membership. And sin as they might, they seldom, if ever, take them off their role of membership until they're six feet under. And I ask the question, is that true love? Now, we, ba- we, 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 we briefly looked at the way that God dealt with an erring person in the Old Testament. Now I want to bring you forward to the New Testament. What does the New Testament say about this? And I, I want to uh, I, 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 I want to ask you the question, how many passages of Scripture in the New Testament, how many passages do you think talk about this principle in the New Testament? How many do you think? How many can you think of? Give me a number. How many passages of scripture talk about this, this principle? What comes to your mind? How many, how many passages do you, do you think of? Come on, I need one number at least. No, no, what? In the New Testament? Okay, I, I mean, that, that's way, way, way more than I would have guessed. I... I would have, okay, with three over here. I would have said four. I would have said four. That directly deals with this principle. I was surprised that there are nine references that speak directly to this. Now, I say this because I want, I want to just, I want to build a case, okay? How many passages of scripture talk about anointing with oil? This section over here. How many passages of scripture talk about anointing with oil? One. How many passages of scripture, this section over here, talk about foot washing? Boy, maybe I'm wrong. I would have said one. What's the second one? John 13. Thank you. I stand to be corrected. There's two. How many passages of Scripture talk about the headship veil in the context of of Christ and the head? One. So we build doctrine on one or two passages of Scripture, and that's not wrong. I'm not disputing that. But here we have nine pieces of, of, of Scripture that talk about church discipline, and we're saying, you know what? I'm not sure how effective it is. So again, I, I just put that out here to say, let's look at the scripture. What does scripture say? Let's base a principle on this, and then let's, let's, let's receive it as from the Lord. The first one we want to look at, obviously, starts with the words of Jesus. He lays the principle. Jesus lays the principle. Then the apostles pick it up, and they reiterate what Jesus has already said. I'm just going to go through these passages of Scripture. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults, Matthew 18, 15, and 17, between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, Tell it to the church, but if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is a little bit lengthy, but I think I'm going to read it because the next message, I really want to come back here and pick up on this passage of Scripture. Today I'm going to use Matthew 18 as the basis of our message But I'm going to come back to uh, Corinthians 5 then to talk on more of the practical part of it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from, from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, Paul was not with them. He was not with the Corinthian church. 
So he was absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged. Oh, wait a minute, Paul, you're pretty radical. You're not supposed to judge each other. Jesus says, judge not at all. What do you mean you've already judged? Well, we'll come back to that. As though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together among with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such an one for the destruction of the, sorry, deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your glorying is not good. Do, not, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now listen very carefully here. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But... I now, now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges, therefore, Put away from yourselves the evil person. Very interesting read, and I want to come back to that next time to really dig into this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, doesn't necessarily talk about discipline, but listen to what Paul says. He's now in the second letter to the Corinthians. At the end of the chapter, chapter 13 is the last chapter in 2 Corinthians, and at the end of that letter he says, I have told you before, all through First Corinthians, uh, first and the first part of Second Corinthians, and he's 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 uh, instructing them of of things that they're doing wrong. We often refer to the to the Corinthians as carnal people, carnal Christians, and so he's being giving them a lot of instructions. He says, "I've told you before, and foretell as if I were present the second time." And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. It's like a father saying, you know what? I am going to deal with this. I am not going to ignore it. And so he's just, I just put that in here because Paul's saying, I am going to deal with it. In fact, earlier he says, I've already judged you. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who, are divi- who, who, who cause divisions and offenses contrary to which you learned, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who, have done, who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech devise the heart of the, deceive the heart of the simple. Titus 3, verse 10 and 11. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, reaching back to Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18. Reject him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Galatians chapter 5. And again, now this, this is a little bit different context. Paul is saying, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, we have to understand the context in which Paul said that. He was talking about the Jews who was trying to impose their, their, uh, their, the, the law on the Gentiles. And Paul's frustrated with them. And he understood the principle of avoiding those who, who, are, who are causing divisions. And he understood them. He says, I, I wish those who are troubling you, I wish that they would cut themselves off. They understood that at some point, the, they're, they're going to cut themselves off uh, by their actions. 
Second Thessalonians 3, 6, in verse 14. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions which you have... Re- traditions? Paul, now wait a minute. You can't find that in Scripture. You're going to impose your traditions on us? That's not even scriptural. What's Paul saying? Not according to the traditions which he received from us. So I think we need to be very careful. I'm not, I'm not here to say that traditions are salvation. But there are some values in traditions. There's some stability in traditions. And Paul's saying, hey, withdraw yourselves if there's someone who's just blatantly walking away from the things that they've been taught. Verse 14, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. And again, I, you know, this, there's a fine line that we're walking here. I, I'm the first to admit it. Um, the, you know, the first thing that I don't want to be very careful about is that we don't openly shame a person who is erring. And, and I think part of the reason that Jesus gave us the steps, and we're going to look at the principle, the, the reason he gave us the steps that he did in Matthew 18 is this very reason that we don't bring a person to shame. But at some point, at some point if he is unrepentant, that he would feel the shame of what he's doing. And this, this apostle of love, this apostle of love who just seeps with God's love and his whole book, chapter one, three, uh, one, through, uh, 1, 2, and 3 of John, comes back and he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, and I think he's referring to the doctrine of love that he just taught, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So these are the passages of Scripture that, that we have in the New Testament that gives us instruction. And so let me just say that it, it, oftentimes we look at, at Corinthians chapter 5 and we say it's only to do with immorality. No, it's not. It's much broader than just immorality. We have different instances or different things that Paul brings out, a divisive person, an offensive person, one who is disorderly, and, and one who doesn't hold the doctrine, the traditions possibly, of, of what he's been teaching. Uh, so it goes beyond just, I think Paul in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians took an instance or an incident that was happening and he used it as an example. And so it goes much broader and wider than immorality. Now I want to call you back to the passage in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, or 18, sorry, Matthew chapter 18. And, uh, and, and I want to look at a, a three-step pattern that, that Christ lays out. And again, I think that, that God, that that. that Jesus gave us this pattern, and if we, and the most effective way, I think this is the most effective way to reach out to an erring brother or sister. I'm not saying that if you use this pattern according to the way that Jesus teaches, that it will produce the desired results that we'd like to see. The thing we have to remember is that there are still people's choices in this whole context. So it may not reach a desired end that we would like to see, but it's still the best way. It's still the best pattern. I'm going to, I'm going to try and make this very practical, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, to, to uh, play out the principle that Jesus had. I was thinking about who to use, and uh, by the way, this is strictly just a practical illustration. It's not 
There's, there's nothing going on between these brothers, okay, that I am aware of. I thought, who should I use? And, and the person that came to my mind is Brother Paul. So, Paul, I'm going to ask you to come forward because I know that you have something that you're concerned about in another brother in this congregation. And, um, and so you, you've been praying about this. You've been, you've, God, has, God has opened your eyes to a, to a brother. And, and I think that, that brother is Kermit. Is that right, that you have the concern about? So Kermit can come forward. And um, so Kermit can stand over on that side. And it's not because you're against each other, but you really are concerned about the 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 thing that's really uh, what is it that he's what is it with him? Uh, I have to think about this. Uh, there's so many. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So that's that's your concern with Brother Kerman, and um, so you have a responsibility. Okay. Now the instruction that Jesus gives. It says, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. This is a private meeting. Nobody else in the congregation knows. Uh, this is nothing that you've gossiped about. And you didn't come to the pastors and say, hey, look, Kermit has a problem. And by the way, that's happened to me already. You know what I tell them? Have you talked to him about it or her about it? And, and the reason I do that is not because I don't want to deal with the situation. I'm trying to follow a biblical principle that Jesus laid out. If you come to me and you lament about a person and a fault in a person, by God's grace, my response to you will probably be, have you talked to that person about it? And, uh, and what I want to say about this, you know what? We are all in this together. This is not, I know that some of you have been conditioned to think that this is the responsibility of the pastor. You have just as much responsibility in this thing that the pastors do. And, and so it's not going to work if we only depend on the pastors to do this. In fact, you know what that's going to create? An us-them mentality. Us-you mentality. Now, we have certain responsibilities. I'm not trying to shirk that. There are, there are lots of instructions for us. But in this principle, we're in it together. And in order for this to work properly, we have to work together according to this principle. So Paul, your responsibility is go to talk to him by yourself. Now, do you know what your responsibility is in this? What's your agenda in trying to talk to Kermit? I'll give you some time to think about it, then I want to have a response. Are you, is your responsibility to go expose the sin to him? Can I help you with this? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I guess expose the sin, but... Within myself, I see that I need to love Kermit enough to tell, just to confront him and say, Kermit, I see this happening. And if, if you don't take care of X, Y, and Z, then there's going to be serious consequences mm-hmm. in your life. Okay. So, so the ultimate, the ultimate responsibility is to bring redemption to his life, yes. because of why. There's eternal consequences, right? Yes. There are eternal. That's why this is so important. Important. That is why this is so important. These steps are so. Important. There are eternal consequences wrapped up in this, and I want to bring something out that I never saw in this path. I saw it. My eyes weren't open to it until I was studying it. I mean, I'll get to that. So can I help you out a little bit? Sure. Go the first responsibility on your part is to fully understand the motive and perspective of the brother in error. Okay? 
you've observed him. You've, you've, you've noticed that this is happening uh, in his life. And, and, but the thing is, he's one person, you're another person. Maybe you misread him. It could be that possibility. So what I think the, the thing that we have to think about in this person, this person has to see that in Kermit, at the core of Kermit's heart, there's something redeemed. He's still a brother. So because he is still a brother, there is something very redeemed at the core of Kermit's heart. And so you are here. Part of you as being an agent of God is to go to him and make sure that what you've observed is, is that, there's, that you have the proper perspective. And the second thing is exactly what you said, to communicate love in the midst of, of your reproof. Now, if we only give love and no reproof, then we're still not. If you only give reproof and no love, then we're still not reaching the goal. So again, coming back to that parent who only gives love or only gives discipline, then we have to give a proper mixture of both. So this is the responsibility. So let's say you've gone and you've had your meeting with Kermit. And and in your mind and in your heart, you've prayed about it, you've sought God, you went, you thought you heard him, and and what you heard was you, you felt like you were right in your observation. You went with love, with all the love that you could muster within you, and by God's grace, you gave the reproof. But you know, not every time we do everything right, we'll still reach the desired ends. Maybe Kermit's heart did not hear your reproof. And, and, God, and Satan can cloud the vision of Kermit, and, and, and he may not hear your reproof. The next step that God gives us is that if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So this is a check and balance step for both brothers, okay? So in the audience here, who are two men that you really respect and that you feel would really help you in this situation to take two or three brothers with you? And just call two of them up. Jonathan Wayne Coons, come on up. So Jonathan Wayne Coons are two of your friends, and uh, you have respect for these men. They've, they've, they, you feel like, like they are going to be able to help you in this process. You share with them what has happened, what has transpired. You've met with Kermit. Kermit has not changed. He's not changed his way. Uh, you share your concern with these brothers, and um, they agree to go with you. Now, Let's say that Kermit, although he's not against Wayne and Jonathan, uh, he's not that close to them. He has some other brothers in the congregation who he's much closer to. But he knows that Paul and Paul is a good friend of Jonathan and, Ker- and Wayne and that they're pretty close together. What do you think Kermit is going to think when he sees these three men coming, what would you think? They're ganging up on me. They're ganging up on me. They're ganging up on me. You think that would, is that the natural response? Sure it is. Now remember, since Paul, and even before Paul, because there's something very redeemed in his heart, the Holy Spirit has been talking to Kermit too. The Holy Spirit has been knocking on his conscience and he's telling him he knows he's doing wrong. He knows he's in the wrong. But for whatever reasons, he's still making the choices that he is. When he sees Paul coming with two of his best friends, what's going to happen? A wall's going to go up, right? A wall's going to go up. And so, Paul, send your two friends home. Tell them they can go back home. Instead, as you think about it, pray about it, who are Kermit's two best friends? And call those up. All right, and just whoever they are. 
Okay, Lloyd and Jason, come on up. Now, Lloyd and Jason are good friends of Kermit. And um, they may or may not be aware of Kermit's problems. I don't know what, where they're at with it. But you share with them. And here's the third one, the mouth of, <laughs> mouth of two or three witnesses. And uh, you share with them what's been happening. And I've used this model already. I've used this model already. Guess, guess this is probably the best, the, the greatest opportunity to reach the heart of Kermit in this step. This is probably the greatest opportunity to reach the heart of Kermit is when Paul doesn't bring his best friends, he brings Kermit's best friends. And you two men have two very important responsibilities. Now, I don't know if there's anything that comes to your mind of what your responsibilities would be. Do you have have anything that comes to your mind? What may be your responsibility in this process? First thing that comes to my mind is being honest. Okay, being honest. With the whole situation. Okay. My my own perspective and also whatever side. Okay. Okay, so basically what I heard both of you say, I think Jason said with myself first, but also with the situation, and the situation is about Kermit, right? But I think we miss a very important ingredient in this whole process, and what I think we miss is that part of your responsibility should be to check the spirit of the confronting person. I think that's part of your responsibility. Is Paul's motive correct? Paul may think his motive is correct, and and it may be in his heart. Maybe he has tried his best to have the right motive in going. But you know what? We sometimes have blinders that we don't see. And part of their responsibility, I think, is to make sure that Paul's response, or uh, part of his, uh, uh, that his response is correct, his motive is correct. Secondly, then, is to see and evaluate the air of the life and or doctrine of the offender. So I think it's your, I think here's the proper check and balance. Why we have the mouth of two or more is to make sure that both parties have the proper motive and and they can speak into that. Because remember, it's not to expose Kermit's problem. He already knows that he has a problem. The Spirit has been knocking on it. It's to redeem him. It's bring him back to restoration, to bring him back to the fold, to bring him at one with the congregation. So I think we have to make sure on this side that our motives are legit and that they are correct. Thank you. You can go back, all of you. Let me just say that even when, even if these two brothers, Lloyd and Paul, or Lloyd and uh, Jason, even if they would come away from that meeting and say, you know what, I, I, from what we could tell, Paul's motive was right. I think he handled it right. I, I think I, I would agree with Paul that, that Kermit is wrong. We've appealed to Kermit. Along with Paul, we've appealed to him, hey, correct your ways, mend your ways. We want you to be restored. We want... You know, even when everything is done right, it still may not bear the desired results that we would like to see. And if that's the case, then Jesus gives us the third step. The final step, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. This now becomes a public meeting. The first one was private. The second one, semi-private. This now becomes public. And there are several things that we need to remember when we go through this, this final stage. And by the way, there's so much, there's so much in this final step. Um, 
excommunication still does not happen at this point. Okay? Let me just be very clear with this. Excommunication still does not happen at this point. All through these three steps, Kermit is still considered a brother and a person within the fellowship. Many times when it is brought to the church, he's already considered an outcast. That is unbiblical. And we'll look at that very closely in Corinthians chapter 5 next time. This underscores the need to deal with the situation. If you were not a brother, we would not need to deal with the situation. And Paul makes this very clear, 9 and 10, verse 9 and 10 in 2 Corinthians 5, or 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote you my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul is saying, we were, we were going to have a daily uh, uh, concourse with those in the world who are sinful, who practice the things of, that are evil, and, 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 but yet we are not to extricate ourselves from them or else we would need to leave the world. Jesus said the same thing almost verbatim in John chapter 17 when he was praying for his disciples. He was saying about his disciples, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Um, so this is not rocket science. We do not judge the world. That is not our responsibility in the congregation. Kermit, at this point, is not a person of the world. But what is more difficult for us to reconcile is the fact that the actions of the erring brother of Kermit, sorry, I'm using your name, but for means of example, the actions of Kermit can be the same as the person of the world. Does that make sense? Okay, so we, this is where we start wrestling. We wrestle a bit more with that concept. The difference is that we expect a non-believer to be involved in the things that Kermit is involved in. We expect that from an unbeliever. But when a brother participates in these practices, we must deal with it. We must deal with it. We are called to judge our brother. And I know some of you wrestle with that statement. And again, I would say it's because our Western mindset has conditioned us that we have no right to judge each other. I'm here to say that's unbiblical. That is why we have church members all across America who really cannot be distinguished from a person of the world. No one holds them accountable. And, and, and if we're going to have, if we're going to be a, a church with life, we must hold each other accountable. We must. The context of this principle has been grossly mishandled in the past. Far too many times. Particularly, I would say, among conservative Anabaptist churches. And part of the reason is that we're probably one of the few that would exercise this. Hence, our apprehension and our negative response toward this teaching. Far too many times, I've seen it far too many times, that in attempt to work with an erring brother or sister, we have started with level three. We have started with level three. 
We have, we have ignored the first two steps of this principle. I recall years ago, a cousin of mine who had fallen into fornication with the resulting evidence of a pregnancy. Her situation was brought before the church and for two weeks she was excommunicated and shunned and then two weeks later was taken up again into full membership. Now I'm not here to degrade or to expose any one particular group. However, I am here to say that this kind of misuse has caused us to tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater. This is a horrible misuse of this principle. That action is strictly punitive, not redemptive. And again, discipline, church discipline, is going to be punitive. But it has to be in the context of being redemptive. And when it's only punitive, then we've missed the whole point of the principle. This is not what this principle teaches. There are countless stories, countless stories, where church leaders have excommunicated brothers or sisters without following these steps in this principle. And I'd like to just be really honest with you this morning that I'm, that I'm, I'm certain that, or let me say it, it's quite possible that there are some of you that have experienced deep hurt through the misuse of this principle. And as a result, a big knot forms in the pit of your stomach whenever this subject surfaces and this morning, I feel led to give you the opportunity to come to peace with that hurt. I would just like to reiterate and say that God's principles really do work. When we do things his way, we can rest in the fact that it is the best possible approach, regardless if it reaches our desired results. Like I said before, it may not. Let's not assume that just because it doesn't reach the results that we'd like to see that the principle doesn't work. We still are working with human choices. We still are working with human choices. So just because, the, just because it didn't reach the desired goal doesn't mean that the principle is bad. I think it's God's best design for, it to be, for there to be the greatest opportunity of redemption when followed through in a biblical way. And so this morning, I'm simply going to, to, to tell you that if, if you have experienced a deep hurt in the past, to the degree that this has clouded your view of this whole concept and this whole principle, then this morning, I'm going to invite you to bring that hurt to Jesus and to deal with it once and for all. I'm just going to ask everyone to close your eyes. Just bow your head, close your eyes. And the way that I'm going to do that this morning is I'm just going to give, just to open it up, if, if there is something in your life and something in your heart that you've experienced that you would like to be free from, the hurt that you've experienced, I'm going to invite you simply to come forward and just stand here in the front and, and tell the Lord that you want freedom from the hurt of the past. And I'm going to invite Keith to come up and just pray with you a prayer of release and God's blessing on your life. And then, Keith, you can also just open it up. If there's a public expression of confession or whatever it is, that they would be able to uh, have that opportunity. Let's just, let's just, I just invite anyone, if there's someone here this morning that would just like to find healing in the Lord, I invite you to come forward and just stand here in the front and Keith will pray with you also that you can pray yourself as well. Is there anyone? Is there anyone else?